All right, I'll invite you to take your Bibles and open to Matthew chapter 5. Your Bible's probably starting to open there a little bit naturally at this point, and we've still got a little ways to go. This morning, we're picking up a question that we've been working on for several weeks. Here's the question. What does it look like to live as the people of God? It's an important question. And it's the main focus of the Sermon on the Mount, the sermon that Jesus preached. He's describing how the people of God should live. We're in this section of the sermon right now where there's comparisons being made. Jesus is making some comparisons. He's comparing how the religious teachers of his day taught the law of God, how they described the expectations of the people of God for the people of God, and He's comparing that with what God actually expects of his people. What we've seen over the last couple of weeks is that these religious teachers, the scribes, they, they had a view of God that focused on the outward behaviors. But Jesus is making the point that they were starting in the wrong place. That the, the scribes and the Pharisees, they didn't truly understand what God expected. And so he's making these comparisons between what they taught, what the religious teachers taught, and what God truly expects from his people. So here's the example that we looked at last week. This first comparison, there's six of them, between verses 21 and 48. And we saw the first one last week. The scribes and the Pharisees taught the command, you shall not murder, which, by the way, is the sixth commandment. It's part of the law of God. So it's a good law that should be obeyed, but the problem is, is that the scribes and the Pharisees, they, they didn't go far enough. Here, here's the way they presented the law. If you don't kill someone, then you've kept the law. But, but Jesus comes in and wants us to see that it's bigger than that. If we're truly living as the people of God, we have to recognize the standard. It's, it's bigger than don't murder. It's bigger than don't kill someone. God cares about the hearts. And so here's where Jesus takes us. That when we are angry with someone, we have the same kind of heart as the heart of a murderer. Which doesn't mean we minimize murder or that we get there and say, we might as well, right? That's not the point. The point is that we think too little of our anger. The scribes and the Pharisees said, don't murder. But Jesus says, go beyond that. The call of God is to put off anger, to put off hate. He's calling us to guard our hearts from hatred and bitterness. When we start down the path of anger, he's calling us, don't stay there. Deal with it quickly. It's important, it's urgent that you don't let that anger well up in you. It's, it's important that you don't let that rift with a brother to continue. That's what it looks like to live as the people of God. That's where we were last week. And the big idea, as we go through all six of these examples, is that it's not just about our outward behavior. God cares about our hearts. He sees our hearts. And he's calling us to be people who have thoughts and desires motives that honor him. Think back to the beginning of chapter 5. Remember the Beatitudes? 
This is one of the ways he describes his people. He says that we should be a people who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And do you, do you hear how different that is than don't murder? Which is the command of God. But it's not just that we avoid killing someone, but it's that we long for what is right in every part of us. We, we hunger, we, we thirst, we, we long for what is right. We want to be pleasing to God. Last week, we reminded that all of us are murderers at heart. And so we have work to do in our hearts. This week, we're going to see that by our nature, all of us are adulterers at heart. And so we have work to do. That in mind, let's go to the text. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 27 through 30. Jesus says, You have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right, <clears throat> if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Now, before we get into the text, I want to try to read some minds, okay? Maybe dangerous. Let me try to read some minds. First, there might be some of you who thought, this is important for somebody else. I, I hope my son hears this. I hope my husband hears this. I hope that other person who probably struggles with lust, I hope they hear this. And you're right, there are those in the room besides yourself that need to hear this, but if that's where your mind went first, I want to encourage you. Don't let this moment in the Scriptures be only for someone else. Right? This is a word for all of us. Sin is deceitful. We must be on guard. We all need to hear what Jesus is saying here, and sin can come in in unexpected ways. So I would just invite you, don't listen to this for someone else. Hear the word of God for you. Even if there's not a hint of lust in you, this passage should still move you to examination. And it's a good warning about the seriousness of all sin and how we must be on guard. There might be another group, though. Maybe when, when this text was read, you didn't think of anyone else. You couldn't think of anyone else because all you can think about is your own shame because of your past and how you've sinned. Maybe shame because for you, lust is real and it's a present struggle. Maybe you have shame over yesterday or shame over thoughts that you had even this morning. And so as I read the text, you don't have room in your mind to think about anyone else because this is me. And so maybe you would think, I've been here, I've had this struggle, it's just not, this sermon's not going to change that. I want to encourage you, if that's you, I want to encourage you with two things. 
At the end of the service, we're going to share this table. And what I want you to consider, friend, is that this table is a reminder that God forgives sinners. Jesus died so he can be forgiven of anger and murder and lust and adultery and fill in your most predominant sin. This table is a reminder of the forgiveness of God. And so if this text brings shame for you, know that there's an answer for that. You don't have to stay there. There's a second thing that this table reminds us of. It's that Jesus died so we can be set free from our sin. He didn't die only so you can be forgiven. He died so you can be set free. We don't have to continue living as slaves. Slaves to anger. Slaves to our temper. Slaves to our lusts. We don't have to continue living in shame. And so my hope for us this morning is that we will leave, yes, more convinced of the seriousness of sin, more aware of our need to put it to death, but also more convinced that God forgives and we can be set free. If your reaction was defeat, I should encourage you even now just to ask God, God, would you open my eyes to the hope I have through you in a way that maybe I've not experienced before? Let this not be just another sermon about how to kill sin, but may this be the time when something changes. All right, I'm done reading minds. But the point is that this is important for all of us. As the people of God, we have to know he cares about our thoughts. He cares about our motives. He cares about the desires of our hearts. He cares about the things that no one else knows about you. His eyes go beyond outward actions. Let's go to verse 27. Here's Jesus, and he's making this comparison between the way the Pharisees thought and what God truly desires of his people. He says there in verse 27, you have heard it said, and that's a phrase we talked a lot about the past two weeks. He's not necessarily quoting the Old Testament, but he's speaking about the way the Pharisees and the scribes taught the law. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. It's the seventh commandment. It's the law of God. But what Jesus is helping us see throughout this whole section is that the scribes and Pharisees held out the law, but they didn't go far enough. They were men who, who wanted to be seen as righteous. And so they hold up the law, don't commit adultery, and they can keep that law, they thought. But the line was drawn in the wrong place. Jesus is making it clear that they missed the intention of the law. Now, soon we're going we're gonna to push past the command, and we're not going to talk so much about adultery by its primary definition, but adultery of the heart. And that's the main point of the passage. But I don't want to get there so quickly that we minimize the seventh command of God, right? Adultery is something that the Bible condemns over and over and over again. It's a sin against God and others. And yet, here's what we have to, we have to admit, we have to recognize, we live in a culture that minimizes it. So that in many cases, it's justified. Let 
and we need the reminder, friends, that this is a serious offense. It has earthly consequences. It has consequences before God. But our world constantly communicates something different. There's songs on the radio that are catchy and playful and glorify sex apart from marriage as something to be pursued and enjoyed. It's in our music. It's on TV. It's in movies. Movies you love that I enjoy, they, they gloss over it, right? As if it's just not that big of a deal. The message is, if your marriage isn't satisfying, go and be satisfied. And if we're not careful, we consume these things and we become desensitized, right? We can start to believe that there are times when it's justified or permissible. This isn't a sermon about music or TV or movies. But we should be aware of what we're taking in and how it can desensitize us to the gravity of the commands of God. I just want to remind you what the Bible says about these things. Proverbs is a big one. Solomon, in, in Proverbs 5, he compares the joys of marriage with the destructive nature and the foolishness of adultery. Can I go back for just a second? If these things bring shame, remember there's forgiveness for that. But we have to remember what's true, right? Proverbs 5 says this. He's describing first the joys of marriage. So married folk in the room, just enjoy this. He says, it's written to a husband, drink water from your own cistern. You got the metaphor? Husband, drink from your own cistern. Flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad? Streams of water in the streets? Should your wife be everywhere? No, she's yours. Let them be for yourself alone, not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. These are my favorite names for Michelle. My lovely dear. No. Graceful doe. He says, let her breasts fill you at all times. The delight. Be intoxicated with her love always. This is a word to husbands. And then he switches and he, he moves from the joys of marriage to the foolishness of adultery. He says, why would you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman? Woman. Here, let, me, let me just say this. First, this goes for men and women, so apply to all of you. When he says forbidden woman, I think sometimes we could think this horrible person, right? Why would you go to that horrible person? No, it's just someone who's not your wife. This person may be wonderfully kind, sweet. She's forbidden, Right? For good reason. Why would you be intoxicated with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. He sees. He ponders all his past. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. Your sin, it's a trap. And he is held fast in the cords of his sin. You will get stuck. He dies for lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, he's led astray. We don't say this to shame, but to warn. 
Do you hear how different it is from the way the world wants us to think about adultery? Proverbs 6, it's really blunt. It says, he who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. The Proverbs speak absolutely. So we could asterisk here and say forgiveness, right? Restoration, hope. But we should also be willing to sit with the bluntness of the proverb because that's why it's said this way. Destroys. The world wants us to believe that marriage is good as long as it lasts, but if it stops being what it once was, then move on. The Bible says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterer. The point is, is that we, we read the Sermon on the Mount and what we cannot and must not hear Jesus saying is, don't worry about the seventh commandment, right? No, he's, he's saying, this is a command from God which should be upheld and then we must go further. We don't stop there. If, friend, right now you're thinking everything you just described is horrible, I would, I would never go there, hang on to that sense and allow yourself to apply it to your lust. Because Jesus says the same way we feel about adultery should be the way we feel about our lust because God sees them through the same eyes. It comes from the same heart. If you feel singled out, or if you feel this doesn't apply to you at all, let me just bottom line it. We're all adulterers. You have heard it said, verse 27, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Brings us back to what we saw last week and what we're going to keep seeing over the next several weeks God sees the heart. He cares about the heart. He holds us accountable for the heart. So Jesus is expanding the way we should think about adultery. He wants us to see it's about more than not bringing someone else into your bed. It's about not bringing someone else into your mind in a way that displeases God. The scribes and the Pharisees said, don't sleep with another person who's not your spouse. Jesus says, Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent or every woman who looks at a man with lustful intent has already committed adultery with him or her his heart. I don't think I need to define terms. We all know the difference between a look and lust. We know the difference between noticing beauty and desiring someone else. Let me also just push this and say, your fantasies may not be sexual, but they may be adulterous, right? When we long for someone who's not ours because of what they could give us, stability, provision, laughter, right? Things that we covet. There's a, a strong connection between the seventh commandment and the tenth, where he says, don't covet your neighbor's wife. We all know what it is to lust. It's shameful, but we've all been guilty of it. And, and yet this is where, because we are all so familiar with it, this is where we're prone to buying into the lies of the world. Like, it's natural. It's normal. 
it's built into us. We shouldn't worry too much about pushing up against it. It's, it's innocent, really. It doesn't hurt anyone. It's just who God made us. It's natural and, frankly, unnatural to try to undo it. This is common. But if we buy into that narrative, we're completely ignoring the plain teaching of Scripture. It is true that God created beauty. It's true that God has given us the gift of attraction. He created sex. He created sexual desire. He has given them to us as gifts to be enjoyed within the right context. But like so many things, if we take it and use it in a way that it's not designed for, contrary to his plan, we're robbing ourselves of the real gift and we're putting ourselves in serious dangers. That's the point of the text. This isn't just be better. This is spare yourself from hell. I'm getting ahead of myself just a bit. But what you have to realize is that a lustful look is coming from the same kind of heart as adulterous actions. You may be in your bed by yourself and be guilty of the same kind of heart sin as someone who brings another person to their bed with them. And what's hard is that we're invited to this kind of mind activity all the time. Commercials, billboards, magazines, it's just there. It's not hard to find. We carry in a pocket, our pockets, most of us, a device that could take our minds wherever we want to go. It gives us the means of seeing exactly what we want to see pretty much whenever we want to see it. And the world will tell us it's normal, it's natural, and if that's what you need to do so you don't do something quote-unquote worse, friends, this isn't the teaching of Christ. He says, I look at the heart. Adultery is serious. Lust is serious, and it can lead you to hell. Which, I don't say that to be dramatic or shocking. I just say that to quote Jesus. He says it in verse 29. If your right hand causes you, your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. Verse 30. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go to hell. Is Jesus just trying to be shocking? No, he's telling the truth. It's a strong warning. We see it in other places. Colossians 3. It says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Strong warning. You're thinking, whew, I'm glad I don't struggle with lust. I feel bad for that guy across the room. Right? But friend, he said the same thing about anger. Right? Let's look back a few verses. He says, I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if lust isn't your biggest concern, don't forget about last week and we've got more to come. Don't miss what Jesus is doing. 
The scribes and the Pharisees had drawn lines in order to define who was right before God. Don't murder and you can be right before God. Don't commit adultery and you can be right before God. But this was a false gospel because the standard of God goes deeper. God sees the heart. And in God's eyes, we have all murdered. We have all committed adultery. Murderers and adulterers, all of us. And this is why Jesus came. He came because you're guilty and so am I. He came because you're a murderer and an adulterer and so am I. He came and he lived a perfect life, never sinfully angry, never lustful of heart. The way the Bible says, he fulfilled all righteousness and he allowed himself to be crucified and in doing so he bore the wrath of God that you deserve. The good news is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While you deserve God's wrath, salvation is available. Instead of wrath, you can have mercy. Instead of death, life. Instead of hell, eternity with God. As we turn to faith in God through Christ, we are saved from punishment. And then we're giving hearts that desire to please God. And this is where this text applies to us. Because we could just read through this and say, asterisk, forgiveness, I'm good. And yet what the Bible teaches is that all those who have been forgiven will live God's way, right? So if you're still consumed with the heart of lust, then you still have work to do in your hearts to ensure that you are, in fact, who you believe yourself to be. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. He says this, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance of the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. I've said this several times. We're grace people, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. True. But don't let your good understanding of grace allow you to rush past the warnings. Right? If you're living with unconfessed sin, hear the warning. He says, don't become partakers with them. At one time you were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. There are these two things the Bible teaches, and we have to hang on to both of them. We aren't saved by our good works. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus alone. We aren't saved because we don't look at porn. We aren't saved because we don't sleep around. But the scriptures tell us that those who have been saved, our lives should reflect the work of God in our hearts. We should be people who are actively and faithfully putting sin to death. So you can think, 
Grace, brother, hold your legalism. And I would say, be warned, friend. Those who are in Christ have lives that are different. We have desires that are different. Let us not be content to let sin go unchecked under the heading of grace. We should be a people who wage war against sin, and that's what Jesus really gets into in verses 29 and 30. Here's the reality. When we become Christians, sinful desires don't just disappear. But something does change. Our relationship with sin does change. We should be a people who are growing in hatred for sin. We should be a people who are fighting against sin. We should be a people who feel conviction when we are in sin. We should be involved in a fight. Verse 29, he describes the tactics of the fight. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. 30, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. The right eye is the predominant eye. The right hand is the predominant hand. If it wasn't clear already, this should make it clear. Jesus wants us to know the seriousness of lust, the danger of persistent sin. And here's the action plan from Jesus. Here's the action plan. If, if you're stuck in, in lust, if, if these desires are overtaking you, here's the action plan. Do whatever you have to do to keep yourself from sin. If the problem is your eye, get rid of your eye. If the problem is your hand, get rid of your hand. There's a phrase I picked up a long time ago. Um, I don't know who to credit. Radical amputation. And that's for me the heading of this passage. Radical amputation. Amputation, get, get rid of the, the thing that's causing you to stumble, and it's radical. Cutting parts of your body off. Radical? Is there a bigger word? Maiming yourself? It's extreme. Jesus says, if that's what you have to do, do it. If it will keep you from sin, then nothing is too radical. But before you start digging out your eyes or sharpening your knife, let me warn you, it might not work. Because if you take out your right eye, you still have a left one. And if you take out your left eye, you still have your imagination. So I don't believe Jesus is actually calling us to mutilate ourselves. There are examples in history of of men who have done extreme things and in the end said it, it didn't work. I've got different problems now. That said, let's not say hyperbably, hyper, man, that was a hard word. Let's not just say he's giving an example. The point is, it may take extreme measures. And it may be painful. But do what it takes. The reality is so many of us are guilty of saying, I can't get over my struggle with lust, but we keep putting ourselves in the same situation over and over and leaving the door wide open. You may need to get rid of your computer or at least install some accountability software. You may need to get rid of your smartphone or quit using social media. And when I say these things, pornography is not the only thing. You may never look at a nude image but you may be constantly going back 
and parousing your friend from college's photos, right? It happens in different ways. Someone could see what you're looking at and see nothing wrong with it, but you know that in your heart and in your mind, it's destroying you. You may need to change the places you go, the people you spend time with. If every time you go to a particular hairstylist, you think, this is awesome. I love being with this person. He's, he's kind. He's gentle. He's funny. He seems to like me a lot more than my husband does. But if you look forward to that hair appointment and you live off of it for the next week, it may be time to find a new hairstylist no matter how good he is. If you look forward to going through that particular drive through every morning for coffee because of the person who hands the coffee out the window and thinking about that interaction fuels you for the next three or four hours, it's probably time for a new routine. Do you get the point? There could be interactions in your life that no one else sees as problematic, but in your heart you know, I like this, I love this, I want this in a way that doesn't please God. You may need to change jobs. Or you may need to walk a different route to the bathroom instead of always walking past that person's desk. Radical? Maybe. But if we understand the seriousness of sin, we should recognize it's worth it. This is the call of God. One pastor said it this way. Just as the adulterous heart plans to expose itself to lust-satisfying situations, that's true, isn't it? I want to go to that drive-thru because she's there, right? I want to go to that store because he works there. I don't know him, but I've seen him, right? The godly heart plans to avoid these things whenever possible. Just as the adulterous heart panders to itself in advance, the godly heart protects itself in advance. We have to realize that there are small and subtle thoughts and fantasies that can lead us to dangerous places. And even if they never lead anywhere, they are still sinful. Now, the goal is not to build a bubble where we can be safe. Because even in that bubble, you will still have your mind and your imagination. But let us not put up boundaries with the excuse of the boundaries can't solve the problem. Does that make sense? We've got to do what we must do. And that's what Jesus is telling us here. Take out your eye. Cut off your hand. We read in 1 Peter 1. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action, be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. As it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds... Conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time in exile. Knowing this, that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, 
you've been set free from those things. And not with perishable things like silver and gold. You are set free by the precious blood of Christ. Like a lamb without blemish or spot. Again, the table, we come to remember that by the blood of Christ we've been forgiven. And by the blood of Christ we've been set free. So why do we keep living in the things from which we have been set free? We should comp compelled to respond with gratitude and obedience and sometimes radical amputation. The scriptures are clear that those who are his will desire to live his ways. And that does not mean you will be perfect. But if we belong to him, we should be committed to the fight. And it should be a fight that we're engaged in all our lives. This is something that we all have to wrestle with. And, and part of my wrestling has been helped by a, a little book written in the 17th century by John Owen called The Mortification of, of Sin. Um, might be worth picking up. It's a cheap paperback. But he says this in the introduction. It is our duty to mortify, to be killing sin while it is in us. We must be at this work. If lust isn't the one for you, it's true of all sin. Maybe it's gossip. Maybe it's worry. Fill in the blank. Owen's, Owen writes, He who is appointed to kill an enemy has only done half of his work if he quits before the enemy is dead. When sin lets you alone, you may let sin alone. But sin is always active when it seems to be the most quiet. And its waters are often deep even when they are calm. Sin is always acting, always conceiving, always seducing, and always tempting. Who can say that he has ever had anything to do with God or for God, which indwelling sin has not tried to corrupt? The battle will last more or less all of your days. If sin is always acting, we are in trouble if we are not always mortifying. There is not a day, but sin is foiled or is foils, prevails or is prevailed upon. It will always be so while we live in this world. Sin will not spare for one day. There is no safety except in constant warfare. He takes that. Is, is this biblical? Well, it's Colossians 3. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Mortify it. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath is God of coming. Put it to death. It's true of every sin. None of us who has, none of us have completely killed sin in our lives. And there is no sin that does not need killing. There is no sin that is so small that it should be allowed to remain. They must all be mortified. The, man, the command applies to all of us and to every kind of sin. It's a call to keep fighting. Let me go back to something I said earlier as we, as we finish. Part of the Christian life is holding these two things side by side. We're called to keep fighting sin. 
But we aren't saved because we can defeat sin. We're saved by Christ. And while the aim of the passage is to take us to a place where we consider sin seriously, don't leave, friend, thinking it's all in your power. The table is a reminder that our only hope is Jesus. We read this in 1 John chapter 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. That summarizes what I think Jesus wants for us. His goal for us is that we would not sin. Full stop. But if you do, when you do, turn to Jesus. 1 John 1, 8, if we, have, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The scribes and the Pharisees held out the law as a means of right standing before God. But the law they held up was not the full law, and the law they held up could never save. But in Jesus, we can be forgiven and given hearts that desire to please him. So as we come to the table this morning, let's come with gratitude and recognize what he's done. He's done for you what you couldn't do for yourself. And yet we don't walk away saying, glad that's done. We walk away saying, now I must live for him. Romans 6, as we close. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Praise God for grace. Let's pray together.